Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Casperson. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Ahan Sarkar, General Manager at Helix by Q2. Ahan is fresh off a plane from Taiwan, so I appreciate him jumping on this recording with me to talk about embedded finance, BASTs, and the many different ways that embedded finance can really help us as an industry expand globally, particularly in Latin America. There is so much work to be done and so much market share to be captured in these emerging markets. So I'm excited for you to listen to Ahan and all of his insights around what we can do fundamentally to better understand these emerging markets, like travel, which he tells us about some of that experience, and just how we can lead with way more empathy in doing so. So I'm excited for you to hear all of Ahan's insights. Ahan, welcome back to my podcast. I'm so excited that you're joining me for another round and to focus on embedded finance, bass, Latin America. What more fun could there be to talk about outside of your most recent travels? Where did you go? Tell us about that first. I actually just got off the plane 12 hours ago uh, from Taiwan, which is where my wife's family is from. We have been wanting to go for like eight years but there was this tiny thing called COVID uh, that happened that kind of made it a little bit difficult to travel. And so uh, we finally went and it was unreal. Uh, we it, we took the trip with um, actually Kari's brother who grew up in Taiwan, who kind of like took us through all the spots. And I found myself sitting there being like, I really should spend more time focusing on learning Mandarin. Uh, if I can't eat half the stuff that I'm eating right now next time, if I don't know how to, how to, kind of say what everything is uh, myself. But yeah, no, it was it was an amazing trip, but uh, nothing better to come back to than a podcast with the illustrious Nicole Casperson. Oh my God, well, thank you. And I agree with the language barrier. So my partner, Anton, whenever we go to Mexico where his family's from, I'm just immediately reminded that I'm so behind in learning the language. And I'm like, okay, if I'm going to develop a relationship with these, with my, you know, in the Huff family, then yeah, I need to learn this language. But I do think that's applicable to business and all of that. It's just as kind of personal as you're, you know, with learning the language with your family as it is if you're going to go work with customers in another country, you need to be able to level with them in their language respectfully. A hundred percent. I mean, one of the things that Kari and I kind of grapple with, my first language was Bengali, um, which is an Indian language. Uh, Kari's first language was Mandarin and her family also speaks Taiwanese. And so we're kind of like, man, one, we have to become conversant in each other's languages. And then two, some sometime down the line, if we choose to have kids, how do you make sure the kid knows how to speak different kind of languages? Like when, when do you speak what? And, you know, ultimately I think we'll have to, we'll have to learn that. But it, to your point, I think there is um, an empathy that comes from being able to speak in your mother tongue and to be able to be understood in your mother tongue that you really can't get anywhere else. Like my my father-in-law, for example, speaks fluent English, but when that man speaks in Mandarin, he is like a poet. It's so wild. Like I remember um, he, he writes this uh, column, I want to say every Sunday, where he kind of talks about what happens in the world. And in English, he is a direct communicator. Like you know what he's saying, 
and you can kind of glean what he, what he, what's coming across. But in Mandarin, this man is writing poetry. Like he opens every column with like something that feels like it could have been written 1500 years ago in ancient China. And he just like opens with this kind of like metaphor and then dives into like geopolitical events with a level of nuance and complexity that I would never understand. And, and I didn't know this until I want to say seven, seven and a half years into our relationship because he writes the whole column in Mandarin and I obviously can't read Mandarin. But one day I was just like, Baba, can you just send me the write-up and I'm going to put it into Google Translate. And I remember putting it into Google Translate being like, oh my God, there's like 70% of what you've been trying to say that I just didn't understand. Because the thing that I've learned about Mandarin is the specific characters that you choose to use, the specific words that you choose to use have like a poetry in and of themselves beyond the direct translation into English. And I feel like a lot of that nuance when you're when you're going into those types of settings and you don't understand that language is lost on you. And in that, like, I feel like a lot of the other person is lost on you. And so anyway, it was tying it back to the the trip. It was, it was really something I was really grateful for to be able to go with both my wife and my, my brother-in-law who obviously speak fluent Mandarin and who could kind of uh, bring me into the, their roots as opposed to me kind of observing them from afar. And to your point in business, I think that's the thing that is the most difficult piece of international expansion. It's not just take your product, go to a different country, rinse and repeat. It's actually immerse yourself in understanding the culture, ways of being, and realities of a totally different set of people, understand their problems, and then figure out how to make what you've built translate over. Quite literally. Well, and that's that takes time and it, you know, takes money and it but the reward could be huge, right? The the market share, the even the first to get to this market, the first to you know open up opportunities to economies of people that are hungry for financial technology, digital financial tools, financial services in general, because they haven't even gotten that part yet. But I mean, to your point of you know, it does, and I feel this too, and I and it's why I am so it's it's so important for me to travel internationally is being able to immerse myself. So deeply, even though I can't speak the language, I will become whatever culture I am in. Like if I'm in the Philippines, I mean, I am Filipino, but if I'm in the Philippines, I'm fully, <laughs> you know, even though I do not like speak perfect Tagalog, I will like rely on my family. But like if I am in, you know, Europe, I am European, you know, wherever place I am in, I fully become a part of that culture so that I can better understand, even if I don't have the language. And I think that's, you know, then my fintech nerd brain can't help but look around and be like, oh my gosh, fintech could really help with that. Oh my gosh, we have this in America, like they should bring it here. Or, oh my gosh, they're doing this really well. America could really improve on that. You know, and so anything, like, did you have those nerd moments, even though you were on vacation with your wife and brother-in-law? There is no vacation from fintech, you know, <laughs> fintech is everywhere. No, it's 100%. Oh, for sure. And well, and also I think we are in a world where different regions are going through this like financial revolution at different paces and with a different set of cultural values and cultural norms, which allows you, I think, to question some of your own norms and some of your own held assumptions, right? Like I think two things that really stuck out to me when I was in Taiwan, one is the 
basically almost every citizen has this like what is effectively a reloadable card, right? Um, that is issued by the government that you can reload at 7-Elevens, you can reload at family marts, you can reload at post offices, you can reload anywhere. But more often than not, you're actually using that as your means for transaction. And it's kind of accepted everywhere that you're going to ultimately go use this type of, I, think, I forgot what it's called, it's like an IC card or something like that. Uh, but you can use it to get on the train. You can use it to go buy food. You can use it to go buy tickets. You can go use it for, for basically anything. And effectively, what they've done is they've streamlined a part of spending money across the country and made it easier for you to kind of interoperate with different kinds of vendors. But the corollary to that that I also noticed is that there's a whole bunch of vendors out there that will only take one of two things. They will take cash. And it's interesting to me that there is still such a prevalence of cash in an economy that has adopted kind of these streamlined payments, right? Because you would like, there are pundits out there that would say, oh, like it should be by and large a cashless society because you don't need cash anymore. And sure enough, that's not the case. And then the alternative to cash that those vendors will take is line pay, right? So a lot of Taiwan uses line for messaging. And it reminded me a little bit of how Square Cash and Venmo and PayPal are trying to create that same type of interaction model within the United States. But whereas in Taiwan, it's line pay or it's cash. Here, it's like, you could pay with Venmo, you could pay with Square Cash, you could pay with the Visa Plus, which just got announced. You could go play, like, there's like a million things that you can play pay with. And to some extent, you just end up defaulting to the option you know, which is your card. Because the new card or Apple Pay, you know, I've gotten used to kind of spending with my watch. But I, I guess it was just interesting to see the dichotomy of the existence of streamlined payments, but the prevalence of cash and the single alternative model, this line pay model, actually being more useful for merchants because they don't have to go set up 10 different options. They just have to accept line pay and they kind of know that whoever's coming through the door is going to have line pay. And if they don't have that, the default is cash. It's not this kind of like cashless card system. So it's just interesting to see how even a country that is farther than we are in some areas, like kind of moved past the standard card into this like reloadable card that doesn't have the same interchange mechanics that credit card debit cards do. But cash is still important. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, it makes you think like, what's the middle ground? And is that where we should be at? Because if you know, there they have those two options. And then here, I think that in America, we're feeling this, the sting a little bit this year of oversaturation. Yeah. We're feeling it a lot. I shouldn't downplay it. We're feeling the too many options, right? And it's something that, you know, I've definitely been paying attention to in the fintech space is just like how many more payment, investing, wealth, like how many more options do we have to give people that before we're even solving for the initial problem one, which is like people generally don't understand finance or have financial education. And does it make sense for our space, I guess, here in the, like, the embedded finance and vast world to try to find a better middle ground? Or is it more beneficial for us to have this many options? Like, what does that mean for, I don't know, what makes sense for our future, I guess? It's a really interesting question. And it actually reminds me of something that Kari told me. So the last time Kari was in Taiwan was 10 years ago, roughly 10 or 11 years ago. And um, 
she has two siblings who at the time lived there. Now they live in the States, but uh, they kind of went on this whole trip. And this was her time coming back to Taiwan after that. After that. And when she was there, one of the things that her siblings told her is like, you know, you guys are lucky in America because you get to pursue individualism, right? You get to pursue being different. And it's actually valued to be different. In Taiwan, especially in Taiwanese schools, the value is in not attracting attention, right? It's in not standing out. It's in not being different. And I have to wonder, does that cultural foundation have some impact on our own willingness to either adopt a single homogenized solution as the solution for everybody, or in the United States, kind of have this bifurcation of options that, to some extent, talk to each other. Because if I think about Taiwan being line pay or cash, and I think about the U.S. being more options that I can probably count on my two hands, you know, is that really just a reflection of our cultural values uh, and the things that we believe are intrinsic to our society? And what's interesting is you have people who are testing the Asian thesis in the United States. I mean, just what is it this week or last week, uh, Elon Musk decides to call Twitter X Inc., right? And he's pretty aggressively pursuing a WeChat or line chat or, or um, you know, WhatsApp style strategy. I think my question is, one, you know, with whatever goodwill he might have lost in the path to where it's getting there, but also two, in a world where there are a plethora of options that have each achieved a different kind of critical mass, will a new option like that really take hold, especially where consumers have a bunch of different alternatives? And I think it takes me back to something that you and I talked about last time we were together on the podcast, which is it isn't good enough to just lodge the same thing in a different color or the same thing with a different style or with a different brand. Like, you know, Alex and I actually talk about this a lot. You have to do a job, right? What is your job? What is the thing that you are solving for the person? Because if you are not doing a discrete job or you are not doing an existing job better, you shouldn't exist. And I think for better or for worse, that's what we are watching in real time in the United States. We're watching the people who didn't do a job go out of business because there's no job for them to do. Like when times are tough, you keep the people you need, you cut the people you don't. And I think what we're finding out is who built something people need? And that's the environment we're in now. And I think we're also, I love your point of understanding like the cultural differences, right? And the the joy and the freedom that comes with um, individualism in America. And yeah, that's the other side of it is like, I am also a believer of fintech apps and companies being able to have their own niche audiences, right? Like, there can be a of investing apps because everyone is going to have different values and different leadership and different things that are going to appeal to a different niche audience, whether you're, you know, looking for people that just want to day trade or actually helping, you know, more women get into investing or what have you. And I think what's cool about that, even though there's a lot of oversaturation in options, is that the ones that can make it, the ones that can stick out through this tough time, there's that level of, okay, so then how do I use embedded finance? And this is what I think is kind of interesting right now about the space is to actually expand my offering so that we're not just helping fintech with fintech. You know what I mean? And like, so that we're actually, how do we use 
the niche audience that we've created, the community we've created with our fintech company to, and then use the advancements of embedded finance to now, right, create that vertical stream of, okay, well, now I can help with healthcare or now I can help, you know, with financing around other elements of, of your life and not just one solution. So curious, like your thoughts there. And because I feel like there's more of that discussion now about embedded finance, actually helping bring adjacencies into our industry more. I think I would break it into two categories, right? One, which is how do you survive as a niche play? Which I think there is the marriage of like the conceptual value and then the practical longevity that you have to do. And then the other, which is niche or not, to what extent is embedded finance bringing in these adjacencies? What does that mean, right? On the first one, I totally agree with you. I think that there are different types of populations who have different kinds of problems that need to be served differently. I think the challenge is the company that is serving them has to have a sustainable business model in serving them such that it can keep serving them and it can serve them other things, right? Because I think if you look at the news that there have been niche-focused banking services, for example, that said, hey, my acquisition strategy is I'm going to focus on this sub-segment of the U.S. population, which is great. But the question they didn't answer is, well, what do those people need that is different? And how am I going to make money offering those services? And when I accept the fact that I'm going to fundamentally serve less people than the total U.S. population, because that's the definition of going after a niche, how do those financials make sense, right? Because I think people kind of stop at the question of, okay, I know that this demographic exists. I know that nobody exists only for them. I'm going to be that. But they didn't take the next step to say, and how am I going to, with only those number of users and some discount factor applied for how many people I'm going to convert, how am I going to make money? And I think those that have been successful ultimately do what you just said, which is they figure out, okay, how do I make money on one thing? And then how do I move into an adjacent thing where they are underserved in that area, whether it be insurance or it be lending or it be financial management or it be something completely different, right? How do I then go find that next thing and build a discrete business model on that next thing? Versus the ones who failed, I think said, I'm going to go after this population and I'm going to offer them everything. And oh shit, I'm actually not going to make money on anything because of the cost burden of offering everything and because I didn't get them to attach to anything and then they'll they'll go out of business, right? And so I think the secret as a niche-focused play is to crack the business model nut first, is to start with something small and to actually be meaningfully different and do a job there and then to expand into adjacencies. I think to the second part of your question, which is, is fintech helping people expand into other adjacencies? I think we are in the early stages of it but the answer is yes. And I think the interesting thing about what's happening right now in the light of the broader macroeconomic climate, like if you kind of rewind the story to Q1 of 2022, people started to realize, oh, dang, like I'm not going to be able to distribute to enough people fast enough. And so this niche business that I have built, while it solves an interesting problem, is not going to be able to outdistribute the biggest companies in the world. It's not going to happen. Right. And so you saw a lot of those players, whether it was giving financial advice or, you know, we have a client spiral that does charitable giving. They started to say, okay, it's a real problem. It's a real thing that people want. 
I just can't figure out how to get to scale by distributing it myself. And they started to move into embedded because their investors obviously want them to focus on profitability. They want to focus on the things that they're most efficient at. And there are other people who want to solve this problem. But again, it doesn't make financial sense to just go solve it for a small segment of the population. And so you saw a number of those providers, players like Uprise, players like Spiral and others, move into this embedded model. And in so doing, actually like raise the tide for all ships, right? It's so doing actually help all kinds of companies do charitable giving or all kinds of companies give investment advice without having to build that out internally. And so I think as you see that trend continue to proliferate over the next six, nine, 12, 18 months, and look out for those private companies that are going to say the pivot to embedded is how they're going to solve their whole business because you have to have a good thought process around how you're doing it because running an embedded business and running a direct consumer business are wildly different. We at Helix dealt with that transition over the last decade or so. But that proliferation, I think, is what's going to drive an increase in adjacencies at each of these different businesses. Because if I, retail brand, let's just say, can now help you do some basic charitable giving as a part of my rewards program without really putting in much effort, yeah, I'll explore it, right? If I, you know, a health insurance company can actually help you save towards some of the bigger procedures you want to go do or something like that. Yeah, I can explore something like that, right? If I, a car manufacturer, want to help you go beyond financing and actually save to work your next purchase or something like that, yeah, I can go do that, right? So long story short, I think, yeah, people are going into those adjacencies. I think in order for them to do that, they need to see a business model that either drives engagement in their core business or net new revenue because people are kind of battening down the hatches right now and not taking on hobby projects. And if you are a business that is focused in a niche area, getting your business model to a functional place is probably the single most important thing to surviving or not. Oh my goodness. And I mean, everything you're saying, it does feel like, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, we really are at just the beginning of this here in America. And then we want to also expand this you know, into like a global sphere, it feels almost daunting. You know, it's exciting, but daunting at the same time, everything that I think you're saying. I totally agree with you. And, you know, before I went into fintech, I was kind of obsessed with biology. Like I did a whole bunch of research and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think we're just living through evolution, you know, like Darwinian evolution. The reality is there are going to be species that will go extinct because they could not find a way to survive. And that is the cost of evolution. But that is also the reason that we have feet and we can walk and we can talk, right? Is because over an extended period of time, those that found ways to survive and thrive are those that reproduced, grew, and then became the species that exist today. And I think it's no different in the financial services realm, which is to say that as painful as it is, certain companies going out of business because they couldn't find a way to survive is actually probably the healthiest thing that could happen for the economy. It's normal, yeah. yeah. Right, and and ultimately, right, when it comes to that question that we asked at the beginning of the podcast, which is, okay, hey, in Taiwan, it's just land pay. Here, it's 20 options. The only way that you get to something that has ubiquity across all of those different areas is to trim the fat. At the end of the day, it's the survival of the fittest, right? And I think that, in some ways, is like the moniker that I would give embedded finance as an industry, whether you are a platform company or you are a consumer company or a small business company, this year is about the survival of the fittest. It is about the people that went underneath the surface 
and actually crafted a good business model. It is about the people that actually figured out how to do fraud better than everybody else. It's about the people who figured out how to do acquisition better than everybody else. And believe it or not, those may not be the sexy brands that you you heard of, right? Because sometimes being a sexy brand is actually really expensive, right? Uh, it may be the ones that are kind of operating under the radar with really good business financials. But 18 months from now, we will be looking at those that made it through this time period. And, you know, there's this saying that the best time to be a tree is after a forest fire. Because when you're fighting for attention and resources and relevance with every other tree in the forest and there's no filter of who's going to be around for a long time and who's not, it's a challenge. But when you burn out the dead leaves, there's a lot more sunlight to go around, right? And there's a lot more opportunity for companies that do have good intrinsics to grow. And so on one hand, I totally agree it is daunting. And hey, for people who are running businesses in this time, it's a tough time to run a business. But at the same time, if you can focus on the fundamentals and you can navigate your way through the forest fire, it's actually only beneficial for you as long as you kind of look at it the right way. Do you think that a company should figure out if they're able to survive through this time before thinking about any embedded finance solutions or add-ons or that type of thing? Or can embedded finance be something that helps prop them up to survival? Yes and yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the first yes is because right now, if you are a fast platform like us, if you are a sponsor bank that's looking to bring on new folks, they are realizing the thing that to some extent we've known from the beginning, which is banking as a service is not direct software as a service, right? It is not a business where you just sign a million customers and you hope some of them scale because every customer is taking on risk. Every customer is investing your own resources to help them get up and running. And so today, in a world where there's more compliance and regulatory scrutiny at these banks, in a world where the cash flow constraints are causing smaller companies to go out of business and nobody wants to go spend six to nine months to get somebody up and running only to have them fail 12 months in, the reality is if you go to a partner and you say, I have nine months of runway, but I want to go enter into a three-year contract with you, they're going to tell you to pound sand, right? They're going to tell you, maybe go figure out your financial problems first, and then let's go do something together. So first and foremost, yes, figure out your own path to sustainability. But at the same time, sometimes the key to the door can be embedded finance. The important thing is that you don't think of it as your silver bullet. I think a lot of people in the 2019 to 2020, early 2022, really late 2021 era, kind of said, I've got this user base and I'm going to go make a billion dollars on embedded finance and become the biggest company in the whole world. And everyone was hopped up on embedded finance and making as a service and that business model was funded. And what they ended up finding out is in order to offer the type of product they wanted with the breadth of offering they wanted, they had to go take on a whole bunch of costs which ate into that revenue that they were getting from embedded finance. And so, yes, it helped them drive revenue growth, but it didn't help them drive profit growth. And right now, investors care about profit because profit is how you survive as a business and cash isn't free anymore. So for those kinds of companies, you ultimately just have to figure out 
what is the specific problem that I'm trying to solve with embedded finance and how am I going to solve it? So let me give you an example. Let's say right now that you are a mortgage lending company. You're probably having a tough time, especially compared to 2020, 2021, where rates were rock bottom and you were basically minting mortgages, right? Right now, the challenge is people aren't doing as many mortgages. People don't have as much money. And so you might sit here and say, well, why would I go pursue embedded finance? To determine whether or not you should do it, you have to understand if your intrinsic problem is something that can be solved with embedded finance or not. If not, don't do it. If yes, do it. So in this particular situation, what is the intrinsic problem? People cannot afford the down payment on their mortgage. Rates are too high, at least for consumers. And therefore, and we've talked to a lot of mortgage owners, drop-off rates are starting to go through the roof, right? Because people show up, they see this big down payment they can't afford, they walk away. And the tough part about the mortgage business is you spend hundreds of dollars to get someone to come to your website and actually see everything. And so when they leave, it really stings because you spent this money to acquire them and you didn't get anything out of it. So the question is not, can I launch a bank account? Nobody cares about that. The question is, can I solve my drop-off problem through embedded finance? And the answer, it turns out, is yes, right? Because how do you help them get towards being able to afford the down payment? Well, one way is you can give them even more debt, but they don't want that, especially at this point where basically personal loan debt is higher than it's really been in the last few decades. Or you could help them save towards it. Well, then that asks the question of, well, why would they save with you instead of just saving with insert top 10 bank here? And that's where you have your competitive advantage, right? Because you as a mortgage business make your money on the mortgage. And so you could, let's say rates right now are 4.5% or 4%, let's make math simple. You can go offer them 5%, but against credits in the mortgage transaction, such that they get to their goal faster with you than with anybody else, but they only get to use the benefit if they actually spend with you, at which point you solve your drop-off problem. So now you're in this world where there's only three options. Option one is things stay exactly the same, in which case you're where you are today. Option two is a Han saves with you that ultimately doesn't go and spend that money with you, like he ultimately goes and, you know, makes that purchase somewhere else. In which case, you just earned 4% rent free on a Han's down payment for however long he stayed with you. So it's pure revenue. Or a Han saves with you and purchases with you, in which case a Han is happier because he got to his goal faster with you than anybody else. And you're happier because I solved your drop-off problem. Right? So that's an example of a scenario where it's like, okay, because of the macroeconomic environment, I'm in a tough time. My core problem is this drop-off problem. I can solve that drop-off problem with embedded finance, and that's why I should do it. So that's ultimately why I say yes and yes. First, figure out your longevity plan, but you may have a specific problem that embedded finance can solve pretty acutely. Yeah, that's incredible. And thank you for outlining that example, because I think it's it can be difficult for people to, to see that, right? To kind of see the forest through the trees, especially in this time right now. And you know, when we think about back to kind of thinking internationally as well, what are the emerging markets that are interesting to you in terms of embedded finance right now? Can I say more than one or do I have to say one? You can say more than one. Okay, I'm going to say three. <laughs> um, uh, one is India. And no, it's not just because I'm Indian. Uh, <laughs> two is probably South Korea. And then three is... Latin America. 
And mind you, I'm not answering the question in, in the light of, you know, where is Helix looking to go and expand tomorrow? I'm answering the question in terms of where am I most excited about fintech evolution across the globe? In India, I think you have a rising middle class who has significantly more appetite for things like wealth management, things like day-to-day cash flow management, things like uh, retail investing than they ever did before. And so now you have a billion people who are all up for grabs, so to speak, for companies that can do a job for them. Super exciting. In South Korea, I think you have a digitally native population that is extremely active in things like trading and things like remittances, et cetera. And so there's a lot of volume that can come even if the population is lower. And in Latin America, you have a wildly diverse population that are growing in different areas and looking to become more interoperable. And fintech is proving to be a way to actually bring more people into the financial system to enable countries to collaborate better together and to actually create intra-region stability, which I think is really exciting. So those would be my, my top three picks right now. Oh my gosh. Okay. Then I'm gonna I'm picking Latin America to to dive a little bit more into what is unique about that market. I mean, expanding on the part where it is super diverse and there is, you know, Latin America isn't just, you know, the big continent, you know, we see on the maps, right? It's like, it's so much more expansive. It includes Mexico. It includes so much more. And yeah, and I know that that's like, that's what's exciting. But what else? I think to answer what is exciting, you kind of have to look at other regions that are not as exciting and then say, what is that? Regions like parts of Europe or like Hong Kong, Singapore, et cetera, China, to some extent, there there are things that are exciting about them, but they're so much farther along when it comes to adoption of what they'll call open finance, when it comes to the overall quality of life for individuals, that while there is opportunity and there is innovation and there is exciting things that are happening there, that opportunity is substantially less than it was 20 years ago. I think the opposite can be said for Latin America. It feels that Latin America as a whole is actively going through the kind of financial transformation and it's not homogenous. It's actually different uh, in different regions. So Brazil is going to be different from Mexico. It's going to be different from Argentina. It's going to be different from Chile. But universally, financial services is helping each of those countries go through that evolution, one has the potential to bring new people into the financial system, kind of in the way that M-Pesa brought a lot more people into the African financial system that would otherwise live exclusively in cash, right? We talked about the kind of cash and digital marriage in Taiwan. That same thing is starting to happen in Latin America. And it's starting to bring down some of the financial borders between these different countries. And if you kind of compare Latin America to the EU, Both are a collection of different countries, but they couldn't be more different in how they operate, right? The EU, at least today, operates almost as one collective unit of sorts with different countries that, you know, have different idiosyncrasies. Latin America is like a quilt. It's just completely different patches that are stitched together. So anyway, zooming out, I would say, number one, just the sheer amount of opportunity. I mean, there's 445 million some up people that are in Latin America today. So about 30% more than the entire U.S. population. And a significant number of those folks are what we would consider to be underserved 
And the new kind of era of financial services are helping bring those folks into the broader financial system. So that's exciting. Two is you're seeing an increase in interoperability between Latin American countries and between Latin American countries and the rest of the world, which is in turn effectively helping raise the GDP of individual populations. Third is you're finally seeing competition in this space in a way that is actually making life a lot better for the consumer. I think Newbank is a beautiful example of this, right? Before Newbank existed in Brazil, you had a handful of options and your products were always going to look exactly the same. Newbank shows up, changes that paradigm, and suddenly the competition has to keep up, right? And so what ends up happening is in order to try and better serve that same consumer, you're now getting better products for the individual. And then finally, you know, for all of us who are platform players who are looking at Latin America, a lot of the services that we have come to take for granted in the United States don't exist on mass in Latin America currently. And so there is this, in the same way as there is in India, there is this massive opportunity to go and serve the same needs in a different place with a population that is hungry for it. Now, the nuance, the challenge with the quilt is that it is a quilt, right? And that you can't, if you expand into Mexico, you can't copy and paste out of that expand into Brazil. It's not going to work, right? Because there are different regulatory regimes. There are different languages. There are different cultural norms. There are different competitive landscapes. And so the challenge about Latin America is that each country is different and it is a different expansion problem. And so what you're seeing now is people prioritize the highest volume countries with the most stability. So Mexico and Brazil and Chile are actually a big focus area for a lot of companies, whereas smaller countries are maybe not as much of a focus. But over time, you'll see that continue to expand as people look to expand their TAM uh, more broadly. So those are some of the things I think are pretty unique about Latin America and the point in time that they're at today. And that I think is really exciting about what fintech can go and do for the space. You're right. There's a lot happening in the American financial services space that we think is so normal and regular that is that isn't in, in other places. And so it's easy for us to almost like take it for granted and not always have the you know mental reminder that, oh, well, another a whole other region of the world is going through an entirely different type of financial revolution than we are here in America. And, you know, I mean, kind of back to the idea of, you know, how do you almost think about reaching that other region when we're still also working on our own things <laughs> and challenges here, here in the States? But, you know, maybe that's more of a collaboration conversation with folks that are already in Latin America and and that makes maybe the most sense, but I feel like back to the early stages, you know, and just seeing it, seeing this unique opportunity and exciting opportunity and challenging opportunity play out. The people that are successful are going to be those that avoid their own hubris and focus on specific region uh, to start and then go from there because where people fail is same way they filled in our space, right? Trying to go too broad too fast. Because if you're suddenly translating all of your technology into three languages, into three regulatory regimes, you're going to miss something. You're not going to serve a certain user. You're not going to get to that world-class customer satisfaction. And you're not going to get the flywheel effect that you want to go get. And so that's that's the challenge. And 
the nice thing about it is there isn't an inbuilt expectation in a lot of these countries. Like when I went to Taiwan, I, I told uh, one of Kari's relatives that I work in fintech and she was like, oh, you're a diver. And I'm like, what? And she's like, a diver, like fintech. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like <laughs> I work in like financial services. And she's like, oh, okay, okay. So what's fintech? And I had to go through this whole explanation of you oh know, and all that kind of stuff. And it was interesting just to kind of understand her expectations of how the financial system works and our expectations and try and bring those things together. But in some ways, anyone who's trying to go into a new region is going to have to understand first and explain later, right? Uh, yes. it, and choosing where to do that is one of the most important uh, decisions you're going to make early on. Oh my gosh, I love that. And well, the Latin America market is, some, is top of mind uh, for you and I think a lot of people as well. Um, Ahan, this has been amazing. Thank you again so much for joining me. What a blueprint in the just the possibilities of embedded finance. And yeah, I just love to help our fintech nerd community expand our mindset a little bit and how we can be thinking about this, especially during these times. But I think that everything you said about Latin America tied so nicely full circle with everything we've said on the show, well, everything you've said on the show, which is quite you know, we, and look, I'm just steering the ship and like, you're, you know, bringing out the good stuff, enjoying the breeze, enjoying the views. That's how I feel about these recordings. And <laughs> um, I get to like hang here, but like just understanding that at the end of the day, you do have to, it, it, it's back to the fundamentals game right now. And we want to always be thinking about how do we grow further and and how do we collaborate and how do we work on helping global financial inclusion? But you laid out an incredible way of thinking about it. And I, so I'm excited for everyone to hear it. Thank you. For sure. I'm going to put you on the spot to close this podcast. If you, okay. if you were to pick the one thing that you were the most excited about with regards to FinTech in Latin America over the next five years, what would that be? Global financial inclusion for women is always top of mind for me. I'm taking my first trip to India, hitting all the, going to hit, I was about to say, hitting all the spots, uh, trying to hit as many spots as I can. Yeah, like, it's a big country. Uh, but, uh, after a lot, and I haven't hit all the spots. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to hit as many, as many as I can in like three weeks, but the one week I am spending there, and the reason I'm originally going is um, to go to the Women's World Banking Summit to talk Amazing. about this very topic. Yeah. And you know, that India is such an important uh, economy and market for this. And you know, I think I would agree with like your top three. And yes, it's based in India, but we're talking about global financial inclusion. And so I think going to other countries and having those experiences and being like boots on the ground, understanding, yeah, we can like try our best to understand via these like virtual things and like social media. But until you are... There is a level of vulnerability that happens when you are actually in someone else's homeland, when you're in someone else, like when you are the guest and the visitor and you adapt to them. And that's what I love about traveling. It's why when I do travel in my head, I'm always like, oh my God, okay, like how can we help more women like with financial freedom and access? And to your point of also like culturally, you know, we women in America here, you know, may have felt financial access for the first time in the 60s and 70s, truthfully. I would have to do my research to see what that looks like for other emerging markets, you know? I mean, talking about things that we take for granted, first of all, in the U.S., we still have a long, long, long road to climb. But if you go look at 
Latin America, you go look at India, you go look at other regions, lack of access to the financial system has been a tool for disempowerment and disenfranchisement forever, right? Long, uh, long time. Ownership yeah. of property, ownership of assets, ability to transact, ability to access cash. Those are things that we take for granted as people in the United States that are not that way in a lot of countries across the world. And, you know, people use the word democratization of finance so much, it's almost become like... Gives me the ick. Cliche. Yeah, exactly. It's like kind of meaningless, but that is what it really means. When people who have been disenfranchised because of lack of access to this system, when people who literally cannot live their lives because they are suppressed, either by their own family or by the government at large, or by a series of, call it inefficiencies, but I'll call them like planned inefficiencies yeah. inside of the system. When those people can live their life because you solved an access problem for them, that is meaningful, right? Like that is actually worth getting out of bed to solve that problem. And I think it's why people like you and me are in this space. Uh, it, it's because that exists. It is exactly why I am. I mean, I, I have felt the financial technology change my behaviors and my life and my identity in the way that like as crazy as it can sound, but fintech is a is, is a tool I use to be, to get to be my most authentic and totally. you know real self because I have a level of control over my finances that I just never had before and a level of learning and a level, I mean, I'm also in the industry like writing about it all the time, but right. you know, the, these tools have been here and have been used by me to help shape my attitudes towards the economy, towards money, towards understanding where I can be in the future. And that's and that's huge for your identity and your culture and your environment and everything around you. There's so much psychology that is attached to fintech and the tools that we place. You know, a little button here and there makes a difference. And is tech is pervasive enough and and what's so exciting about you know other markets is is understanding that, you know, I think like women's world banking implements like where at, like they meet their emerging markets where they need to be. So, you know, if a culture uses it, has like all these different types of things, they will just place the digital tool right there for them so that it's like as easy as possible and they have that access. And for them, it's like the first time and they've never experienced any kind of autonomy or freedom before generally sometimes and then for it to be on their finances and for them to have that control is huge like it's huge and it makes a huge difference especially in emerging markets where there's you know i mean in india and the philippines like there's servant culture is still such a huge deal and like those people aren't getting access to financial services or being banked or anything like that they're cash under the mattress people but anyway so like that's what we're here for. And that's what's exciting about everything. And thanks for turning the tables on me. <laughs> for sure. To close this up. Yeah, I think the thing that excites me about fintech is that its entire existence and its definition is predicated upon change. The expectation is change in fintech. And that's what I think allows it to embrace people like you and me. That's what allows it to change societal norms by changing mechanical functions in society. And that's what I think makes it such an exciting place to be right now. It does. It does. It is. Oh my gosh. Thank <laughs> you all. I'm like, I know, I know. I mean, 
if only this was a how jazz my friends at like a a lunch or at the bar were when they asked me about fintech. But um, <laughs> give it ten years, dude. Give it ten years. Yeah, it's, it's just why I hang out and get drinks with you so that I can talk to. Like, uh, like about this. Just call Anton. We'll talk about India. It'll be great. Yeah. Oh my! God. I I know. I'm excited. Well, thank you again. Thank you. This has been amazing. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too.